We are brought here to the minor prophet Nahum. And as I had mentioned before, you only find yourself in that category of minor prophets just because your writings weren't quite as long as those of Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. So it's not as if they were lesser important. It's not, it is in no way comparable to the minor leagues in baseball. Uh, it just has to do with the length of their writing. Uh, so we're here at the prophet Nahum. Not a lot is known of Nahum. We do know that his name means comfort, and um, comfort in particular to God's people uh, and to the, the land of Judah. The kingdom of Israel is no longer uh, as uh, Nahum's writings. Nahum was the second prophet to write um, primarily addressing Nineveh. You'll recall Jonah. Uh, who lived about a hundred years before Nahum, he not only proclaimed a judgment against Nineveh, but he went there and told them so. Uh, in this case, Nahum is also proclaiming judgment against Nineveh, um, but uh, he is not in Nineveh uh, when he does it. And so he doesn't go there. There's no indication that he was there at the time. And so he is declaring the justice of God uh, to the Assyrian nation whose capital was Nineveh, uh, and we see here that he's doing that in the context of God's people. So these are God's people primarily that even this letter was initially addressed to as he anticipates Nineveh's impending fall due to the judgment of God. And so we have here in verses 2 through 8 in particular uh, a hymn. So this is this is actually a hymn that Nahum has written. Uh, and uh, so we see in it Uh, really a comprehensive picture of the character of God. And now, uh, it does seem perhaps, uh, at least potentially from one perspective, mostly dark in one way, but nonetheless, I think hopefully what we'll see primarily is the sovereignty of God in it, but also the comfort for God and His people Uh, Additionally, this idea of the preferential love of God. The preferential love of God. We mostly probably can recall the the saying that God uh, brings the rain on the just and the unjust. And that may give us an impression that that's a full expression of uh, somehow an ambivalent God. That he uh, sort of... Without preference to individuality, he brings rain. Um, uh, and that is, that is uh, perhaps, in a sense, true, but we, we should never forget that our God is a personal God, that God, God is, is in control of every molecule of your body. I mean, one of the most significant things that came out of the Reformation was uh, a, a fresh re-understanding, if you will, uh, an unconformity to the problematic ways of Rome and a readjustment to the biblical ways of the truth and the realities of God's sovereignty. And so that we see that God is perfectly sovereign, that His justice is in fact inflexible, but also we see that He showers His comfort and love on His people, on those who would turn to him. 
And so, let's look at this. We Again, I mentioned the word inflexible regarding his justice. I mean, we can't forget that the context of Nahum's proclamation is to a scattered nation of Israel and um, a nation of Judah, which will not exist a whole lot longer, actually. In other words, the nation of Israel has already endured the justice of God themselves. Um, and so it's not as if God overlooks even his own people regarding his justice. But we also understand, of course, with the advent of the Redeemer and this concept of forgiveness and so forth that we, we find that his justice sometimes is applied to a substitute But nonetheless, we see the importance of his control, of his sovereignty, and we see really a fullness of his character here. So let's look at these verses, beginning here in verse 2. The Lord is jealous, avenging. He's wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. It may surprise you, perhaps, to see that our God is a jealous God. You likely have grown up in the context of the idea that, for instance, a number of these things only have a negative tone. For instance, wrath or jealousy. One of the most interesting chapters in J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, is the chapter entitled, The Jealous God. It gets our attention. The jealous God, it sounds kind of offensive. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, one of the first facts about himself that he taught them was his jealousy. The sanction of the second commandment spoken audibly to Moses was, and I quote, I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. A little later, God told Moses, the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So what we see here is, in this name of jealousy, my name is jealous. So the Lord says, one of those names is, all of his moral glory is described in this idea of jealousy. He, he will bring justice. Uh, he, he, there's a, and, and one of the most important aspects of Nahum's prophecy applied to our own culture, our own day, is really this, this comprehensive nature of the character of God that Nahum displays. And hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that. We, we recognize that, that jealousy is, it does tend to be, particularly in human form, negative. As does anger and wrath. Uh, and there is no place, of course, for this idea of vengeance regarding humanity. That's, uh, that's the job that God holds for himself. But nonetheless, there is a certain aspect of jealousy that is absolutely appropriate in humanity. If there was someone that came into my home and was an adulterer, and I didn't express a certain jealousy over my wife and her care, then I would be a fool. A wicked fool at that. Uh, And so we have uh, an appropriate sort of concept here of jealousy. God will guard his honor. He will guard his honor. And while he doesn't settle all of his accounts on Sunday, he will settle all of his accounts. They'll They'll all be settled. There'll not be one 
issue of retribution or vengeance that will be left undone. And the Bible says here in verse 2 that he keeps, he keeps wrath for his enemies. He keeps wrath. This sinful earth will be destroyed and remade. The burning lake of fire will not be destroyed nor remade. It will continue to burn in infinity. The Lord keeps his wrath for his enemies. It's a scary thing. It's a scary thing that Nahum proclaims. Verse 3, he's slow to anger. His anger doesn't control him like is unfortunately common in the human version of that. One of the things that we see displayed in Nahum's prophecy is this incredible aspect of control that God has over his own character and over the creation, the control of God, not in a perverted kind of way. Often when we hear the word control, we may think of some sort of perverted supervisory aspect applied to a certain thing, but that's not the case, certainly in God's character. He's great in power. He'll by no means clear the guilty. When you think about your own salvation, it may be that you're inclined to think that God's going to overlook your sins and that that's the way that you come to Him. That your expectation, your only confidence in coming to the Creator God, your only confidence is that He somehow overlooks your sin. That somehow he, he, he won't take it into account, that he misses it, that he, that he has a certain filter in which he, he will not allow to pass through things that you would consider minor. But that's not, that, that would be a very poor uh, reflection of the character of God. The Bible says here, Nahum's prophecy indicates that he will by no means clear the guilty. Every sin will be accounted for. His way is the whirlwind and storm. Now, I wouldn't want you to get the impression that because God's way is the whirlwind, that He is a chaotic God. God is absolutely not chaotic. And this is one of the important aspects and really the pinnacle of the expression of God's control. The point that's being made here, included in the verse 4, he rebukes the sea, is when you think of, for instance, the whirlwind or the sea, when you think of a hurricane, a tornado, or when you think of the sea, what do you think of? Well, uh, since I've categorized the sea in the same category as hurricane and tornado, the whirlwind, and that's the way that Nahum proclaims it, it might be appropriate that you would consider, at least in this context, that we're we're not referring to uh, what we would appreciate as a glassy sea. 
We're talking about apparently random hundred foot waves that come and crash upon unsuspecting vessels in the middle of the ocean. But what Nahum is saying is, is that while the whirlwind and the sea appear to be the most ominous, the most impetuous aspects of creation, is that God controls them. He rebukes the sea. Just as the Lord Jesus rebuked the storm. It's a measure of authority. And that's one of the things that is fascinating about what it is that the Lord Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee. What was he doing? What occurred? Was it some kind of magic spell that he cast on the Sea of Galilee? Is that, is that how, he, how he works? Is that how he heals? No. The Bible reveals that it is an exercise of authoritative control. And that's the way that God does what He does. He is in control of what appears to be a chaotic sea or hurricane. The mountains quake, says verse 5. The hills melt, the earth heaves. Who can stand before His indignation? No one can stand. No one can stand. The assumed answer to the question is no one. No one can stand. This terrifying description of God is directed at the Ninevites, who are the target of God's revenge because of what they're doing to His people. The Lord's governance of history is completely consistent with His character. He demands undivided submission everywhere from everyone. Rejection of God leads to chaos in society and nature. It evokes his displeasure and results in in retribution. Rejection of God leads to chaos in society. Anybody feeling that a little bit out there? Rejection of God leads to chaos in society. Chaos in society is the precisely controlled judgment of a holy God. It appears chaotic to us. But nothing is chaos to God. I'm sure you'll be happy that we're at verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Now, what a helpful passage, verse 7. 
And it might be that as you read uh, the first six verses, and we'll look also at verse 8, that it might be that maybe were you writing this, you might say in verse 7, the Lord is also good. In other words, additional to all of these other things, He, by the way, happens to also be good. But you see, God's attributes and His nature don't work that way, right? Because of the character of God and the makeup of God's person, we see that the context of all of His attributes are all-inclusive. What it is that God does is, by definition, good and holy. God's righteous anger, His jealousy, His judgment are not incompatible with His goodness. That's what Nahum is helping us to understand here. God knows the redeemed. This knowing is the preservation of the faithful. God knows the redeemed. He knows the redeemed. Somebody was just bringing it up to me, I think it was last week, the story that Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man. You'll recall that the rich man was in hell and Lazarus was in heaven. And hopefully you'll notice in that story that Lazarus is given a name and the rich man isn't. God knows the redeemed. He knows the redeemed. And the rich man is still ushering orders, even from an eternal hell. Send him to me so I can get a drink of water, unrepentant in hell. The ominous power and judgment of God didn't turn him one bit. But it has a different effect on the redeemed. To be a refuge that God is implies a refuge in distress. God's care over us doesn't take away the storm or the whirlwind, but He preserves us in the midst of them. As mentioned before, the storm that Jesus calmed on the Sea of Galilee was not a representation of normalcy. Obviously, miracles aren't normal. But it also isn't the normal way that we have lived our lives. The point that I'm making is, and the point that the Lord Jesus was making was, when he asked the question, where is your faith? Wasn't that they didn't have faith. But it's they failed to exercise faith because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, understands that all of our lives, He will not, for the most part, take storms away. But He will be a refuge for us in them. And in that, we have this, as the Apostle Paul uh, prioritizes in his own life, the fellowship of the suffering of the Savior. And it is only in that deep fellowship of suffering that we enjoy this close proximity that we should long for.
One of the perhaps unexpected aspects of God as refuge is that it isn't something in which man is passive. Now, this is, a, this is an important aspect to this concept of refuge. The proposition here isn't that God is a, sort of a do-it-yourself refuge here. That's not, that's not the point. But it's important that we understand this idea of how God is a refuge, not unlike when the Lord Jesus uh, said to the disciples on the boat, Where is your faith? For instance, Proverbs 4.4 says, Keep my commandments and live. Uh, That is not a recommendation uh, to think that you will be self-justified when you perfectly obey the Ten Commandments. That isn't what the wise man Solomon is getting at in Proverbs 4.4. What he's getting at is, my obedience to the law of God is a refuge. It is a refuge. Proverbs 4.10, Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. Hear, accept my words. Again, the association simply of the obedience of the redeemed as they are the means of this refuge. Proverbs 9, 8-9, Reprove a wise man and he will increase in learning. Reprove a wise man and he will increase in learning. Why? Why do you want to increase in learning? Well, when's the last time you said to yourself, if I'd only known... If I'd only known. Having the Lord as refuge is a skill to be developed. It's a survival skill. It's a skill that allows one to enjoy the Lord more fully each day, even in the midst of storms. Reprove a wise man and he will increase in learning. We're to be a people, a redeemed people, who as we walk this earth, the pilgrim way, we will recognize now... I understand how to respond in this storm. I didn't before because I learned by way of reproof. Proverbs 15.10, whoever hates reproof will die. This is simply the opposite of the proposition stated. Listening and abiding in the way of God is a refuge for life. Rejecting the ways of God will result in death. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. All the ways of man are pure. Now, the point in Proverbs 16.2 isn't that the reality and the objective truth is that all man's ways are pure. But it's that, the point is, is that relying upon God is not natural. And this is one of the most difficult unconformities that we'll enter into as God's people. And that is growing in a self-distrust. Growing in a self-distrust. 
That is so hard for us to do. We are so confident. So confident. Verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end of his adversaries so that the enemies of God will never more terrify his people. The Bible says that he will pursue his enemies into darkness. I think that's one of the most ominous aspects of this entire passage. In the old days of warfare, darkness was a protection from one's enemies. Did you know the Marine Corps actually has flying squadrons that only fly at night? That's all they do. They go after the enemy in darkness. God pursues His enemies in darkness. There is no safe zone for the enemies of God. One of the most profound reasons God gives us a description of His wrath is so we may be humbled and cast ourselves down before His irresistible power. Otherwise, we will be cast down by Him. As we rightly humble ourselves, we'll be all the more ready for repentance. As we see the punishment that we rightly deserve. And then we'll be transformed into the image of Christ. Then we can appear in confidence before God. Again, the point is, as we have this more comprehensive nature of the realities of God and His wrath and His vengeful anger, also, of course, of His goodness and His care and refuge for the redeemed, the inclination should be for us, those people who would be turned to God, is that we recognize that we deserve that. But that does lead us to a problem, uh, and that problem is, is that it's likely that we don't think we deserve the wrath of God. Because we look in the mirror every morning and we say, who wouldn't want me in heaven? I'm such a nice guy. Look at me. It's very difficult for us to attribute God's righteous anger to ourselves. But then, of course, if we fail to do that, we also obviously diminish what it is that the Lord Jesus has done for us. The life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was no walk in the park. If we view our our salvation primarily in terms of God serving us then this submission to God will seem very odd. 
Calvin says God is hard and severe towards stubborn and unimaginable men, unmanageable men. And he's merciful and kind to the teachable and the obedient. As I said, there's no indication that the Ninevites ever heard the proclamation that Nahum made. But they rejected God. We have seen in the other prophets that God holds even godless men accountable to His laws. He destroyed nations for their horrifying lack of justice, even in warfare. God doesn't change His nature, of course, but He treats men according to their disposition. Now, this is an important aspect in... We discussed this a little bit, actually, on Friday evening at the Spurgeon Memorial. Uh, A challenging aspect to this, this idea that God treats men according to their disposition. 2 Samuel 22-27, With the purified you deal purely. With the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. Psalm 18.26, with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. I recognize that both of those verses are practically the same. However, they are in two different places in Scripture. Leviticus 26.21-26 also has a similar reference. The point, some of the aspect of what we see in Nahum's prophecy when we see this comprehensive look, we recognize, again, as the Bible says, to the crooked, God seems crooked. The proverb says, when you search for evil, you will find it. But when you search for good, you will find that as well. Now, that is very familiar to us. That is our life experience. Those of us who are inclined to be more critical have no lack of finding things to critique. There's always someone out there that I can critique. There's always a problem. There's always an issue. And those that are inclined to regale in the goodness of God find no end to enjoying the things of God. The Lord Jesus treated the Pharisees in the same way. You'll notice that some of the parables the Lord Jesus Christ, as He's discussing with the Pharisees, projects this harsh uh, sort of characteristic on the Father because that's the way that they perceived Him. Now, here's one of the scary things about this idea that God treats men according to their disposition. 
is that when you project a perversion upon the character of God, that's the way you perpetuate the way that you view Him. For instance, let's say that someone in your life has suffered an untimely death. Someone very precious to you. And let's say, because of your understanding of who God is, that you project upon God uh, an unfeeling, harsh ogre who could have saved your loved one but decided not to. And so what happens is that you have a, a very unbiblical view of the character of God, but what also occurs is that you perpetuate that idea and you view God in that way. And to the extent that you remain unteachable and unhumble as you approach the Word of God, you will be entrenched in that view of God, and that's the only view that you will ever have of Him until you submit yourself and come to Him. Nahum 1.7 reveals a very significant aspect of God's character, the preferential love of the elect and His inflexible justice toward His creation. Proverbs one twenty nine to 33 Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. God's omniscient power is irresistible. It's irresistible. And the reality is is that we can we can either happily submit ourselves and enjoy all the sweetness of this loving God or we can refuse to submit ourselves and he will cast us into an eternity of judgment. In David Wells' excellent work, God in the Whirlwind, he lays out the biblical theology of the key to interpreting God's love. It is holy love. This is what is described in this hymn of Nahum. Now, and I would like to encourage you as you think about and even reference God's love, I would like to encourage you to add to your vocabulary a modifier to that simply to help you. It's not going to help God any. He doesn't need any help remembering His love. Well, when I think of God's love, can I think of it in terms of God's holy love? There aren't two kinds of love. It's just that our culture inclines us not to associate holiness with God's love. God's people had already experienced many times in Nahum's day the right judgment of God. Israel as a nation, as I had mentioned, had already come to an end by the time Nahum was prophesying. 
They, in fact, were destroyed by Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh, that which is being declared against here in Nahum's prophecy. Unfortunately, many looked upon that destruction and projected upon God a myriad of perverted characteristics. And Nahum sets the record straight. The shaping of our life in response to God's declaration of objective truth is that we have a crushing problem of sin. And he has a Savior which perfectly corresponds to our crushing problem. You see, if in my perspective that God is to me uh, only a servant and that he is to do whatever I ask for him to do, then it will be very difficult for me to embrace and to enjoy and to enter into the realities of this fact about God that his love is a holy love. And when I'm in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw me more fully into that which could only be described as unconformity to the world and conformity to Christ. Our redemption sets, sets in motion the process of being unconformed to the world. Imagine, if you will, walking up to a sizable piece of steel that appears to be bent in an arch. Years ago, I had the leaf springs on two of my trucks rebent. Leaf springs are pretty stout pieces of metal. Matter of fact, if you were to just encounter it on the street or something, you might look at it and you might say, well, that appears to be manufactured in a way that's bent. And you would be right. If you had a backpack with a couple of hundred pounds of weight in it and stepped on it, it'd flatten. But when you stepped off of it, you'd notice that it got curved again. That's us. That's where we are. We're conformed to the world. And the process of transformation by the renewal of our minds is the work of a lifetime of walking with the Lord. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Before our redemption, God had little weight in our lives. Perhaps we acknowledged Him, but likely considered that He was ambivalent toward us, that we had to look out for ourselves, that He didn't care about our so-called little sins. Now, there's another pernicious activity at work that we also see in the days of Nahum. When you think about just the burden of living, for instance, in Judea during the days of Nahum, think about the lurking enemy of the Assyrians. They care nothing for God's people. 
they are, and all of those that would be determined against the people of God and the ways of God and the church of God, those people uh, are to some extent or another associated with the power of demons. And you can imagine just the kind of burden that came with living day in and day out with this pressure of anticipating or even expecting to be sacked by the Assyrians. It wasn't a nice little war either. It was horrifying in every aspect. This is one of the reasons that Assyria is judged. But you see, with that comes something that we're experiencing in our own day, and that is this idea that Wells gets at so well, David Wells, uh, in a number of his books, not least of which is this one that I've referenced, uh, God in the Whirlwind, is this idea that we now live in a therapeutic world. And what I mean by that is, is that This world, in all of its saturation and decontextualized information, is burdensome and heavy. Getting up in the morning and hearing the news that has nothing to do with you and which you can do nothing about begins to be to you a weight. And so all you really want is the therapeutic. As a matter of fact, you probably encountered old friends and they've said something like this, only tell me good things. Good vibes. That's all I need. That's all I can take. Even the church has indulged in this cultural conformity. Church leaders fall to shameless flattery of the flock as they describe God as only imminent and loving, no longer transcendent and holy. We no longer think of ourselves in terms of our human nature, which is hopelessly fallen, yet designed to live in saving relation with our Creator. We're pushed at every turn of life to view everything in terms of self. We're uniquely uh, distinct and all we are and do is officially valid. This is the idea uh, in the contemporary phrase, don't judge me. The whole point in the contemporary phrase, don't judge me, is that anything I do is officially valid and right, objectively. That's the idea. When someone in our culture says, don't judge me, that's the point that they're making. We frame things in absolute moral terms. The Bible does that, I should say, but this idea is no longer appropriate in our culture. The new psychological man has no reference points outside of himself. The new psychological man has no reference points outside of himself. You say, well, that has nothing to do with me. I fear that all of us have been horrifyingly impacted by this one idea. When you... Hear the proclaimed Word of God. 
and you say, I don't know about that. What do you do? What do most people do, I should say? They go and check one precious reference. One precious reference. They check their intuitions. Am I wrong? And when what they hear isn't in accord with their intuitions, because they are in the culture of, unfortunately, psychological man, there are no objective points outside of that individual. Completely untouched by any obligation the community. The institutional aspects of the church have come to be viewed with skepticism. God's not found in church doctrine or authority, but only in private intuitions. We're quick to be critical about the ministry of the Word of God, but we're inclined to compare what we hear with something that actually isn't, in fact, biblical orthodoxy. Where do you go to find biblical orthodoxy? That's one of the primary reasons that we've committed ourselves to be a confessional church. We adhere to what has been considered biblical orthodoxy for 500 years. And, of course, before then as well. Nahum snaps us all happily back into a much better reality. While we won't have the true God on our own terms, as we approach Him with humble teachableness, we'll find that the truth about God is much better than our intuitions and faulty cultural conformity. This process of unconforming to the world and being transformed to God's holy love is nothing less than mortal combat. Mortal combat. By the way, you know, even as I typed this in my computer, I wrote the term Mortal Kombat. My computer spell-checked the word combat and wanted me to change it to a K. Do you know why? Because of the game Mortal Kombat. So our own culture, you see, that it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The, the, the incredible power and forcefulness of the culture that we live in. And we say, no, no, it doesn't affect me. And unfortunately, it does. It does affect us in such powerful ways. We have every reason to be hopeful. Nahum sets us straight. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. The God of the ages knows us. You know, our first parents... Adam and Eve. They didn't survive the first contact with the enemy. You know that. And so ever since then, we've always received the Word, as the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, in much affliction. That's our only option. To receive His Word in much affliction. But He is the refuge in the storm. We can't escape the storm. We want to. I want to. I far prefer a place that isn't stormy. Absolutely. But if I can only have Christ, 
then we know as we grow in this faith that we will prefer Him to a sunny day. Let's pray.